You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Isaiah 66 1 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray in this moment, Lord, that um, Lord, that we would tremble. Lord, I ask for trembling at your word. I ask that, Lord, we would be led by a fear of the Lord. Um, Lord, you say that not all should desire to be teachers because we'll be judged highly. So, Lord, help me to um, treat this with reverence, treat this with respect and honor. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just prepare our hearts um, for what I'm about to say. Lord, um, we don't want to make room for you. We want to give you the entire room. So, Lord, we give this room to you. And, Lord, uh, my prayer is that nobody came here to hear from me, but we all came to hear from you. So, Lord, I just pray that um, you would anoint this time and just prepare our hearts. Give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see, and the hearts to receive. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. So, without further ado, we'll jump right in. So, there's a quote by A.W. Tozer. It says, What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Really, what he's getting at here. If you think about it, your family is not the most important thing about you. The job you have is not the most important thing about you. How much money you have is not the most important thing about you. How much points you score when you play football in high school isn't the most important thing. What he's saying here is the thing that comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Scripture bears witness to this when Satan attacks Adam in the garden in Genesis 3. His first attack on mankind was Adam's belief and Eve's belief about who God was. He he attacked God's character. If you read Genesis 3, it's really interesting because everything in the creation event leading up to Genesis 3, it says the Lord God made this, the Lord God made that, the Lord God created this, the Lord God created that. And then you get to when Satan speaks to Adam, he says, did God really say? Lord was removed. So when God just becomes God, right, and we take the Lord away from him, we don't make him Lord, that's when things get dangerous. So Satan's first attack on mankind was their belief about God. And we're living in the fallout of that today. So like Chris said, I've been given the the grace to minister and to serve, and to just do life with men at the rescue mission. And one thing that I've learned, and that I've seen, is that there have people, and I've heard story after story after story after story, and almost the common factor in all of them was someone came and had a wrong, hurtful core belief about who God was. That, a lot of times, that is the thing that drives what we do. Right? If I believe that God is angry at me, no matter what I do, then what's the point? Right? No matter what I do, he's ashamed of me, so I might as well just do things the way that I want to do them. Right? So what we believe about God affects our entire lives. Like I said, maybe you believe that 
you know, God's smiling, but behind his back, he's got a hammer and he's just waiting, waiting to take you out of here, right? Maybe you believe that God's been turning his face from you. Maybe, maybe on the opposite spectrum, maybe you believe that God is this just forgiving, loving God and that there's no justice, right? Maybe you believe that God's just willing to co-sign anything that you do, right? And that there's no moral standard, right? It can go both ways. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. So if you're taking notes today, the title of this sermon is called Paradigm of Prayer, okay? In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is going to provide us with both a paradigm and a paradigm shift. A paradigm is defined as a typical example or pattern of something or model. Okay. Jesus gives us the model prayer when his disciples ask him how to pray. In these scriptures, he also gives us a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift is a major change in the worldview, concepts, and practices of how something works or is accomplished. As we walk through these together, as we walk through these scriptures together, my goal and what I hope for this and my prayer is that as we see, as we walk through this Lord's Prayer, Jesus is going to show us, number one, who God is, and he's going to show us who we are in light of who he is. So without further ado, let's go. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's actually a, there's a, there's a table in the back. Uh, you can get a physical copy. We're going to dive into this together. So Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. All right, we're going to stop right here for a second. I'm not the first person that's noticed this or made mention of this, but I always think it's really interesting how Jesus worked miracles. He casted out demons. He healed. He did a lot of incredible things. The disciples didn't ask him how to do any of those things. What the disciples did ask him how to do is how to pray. So I think this shows, number one, how important prayer is, and two, it gives us insight into just how intimate his relationship with the Father was. His prayers were probably just out of this world, phenomenal to listen to. So, Father, hallowed be thy name. So that word hallowed, the Greek word for that is hagiadzo. What it means is separate or purified. Jesus, when he says the Father's name, is immediately setting the Father's name apart from everything that's impure, everything that's unholy, everything unrighteous, everything profane. He's setting the Father's name apart from everybody that's sinful, anybody that's hurt us, anybody that's caused damage to us, anybody that's betrayed us. Jesus is setting his name apart from everybody else. Jesus not only identifies who the Father is, but who we are as his followers. So in the Old Testament, fatherhood was talked about by the Jews, and they had this worldview of God being father, but they didn't communicate to him directly as father. And we see this in Isaiah 63, verse 16. I'm just going to read it really quick. It says, For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from old is your name. So back in this time period, when Jesus was speaking to, to his disciples, the religious leaders of his time had this idea and this framework that their lineage is what made God their father. That them being Abraham's seed is what inherited them salvation. So what Jesus does here, 
And I'm going to back this up. I'm going to read from John chapter 8, verse 39. If you want to turn there real quick, you're more than welcome to. Jesus is saying that you can have one of two fathers. So in Jesus, oh, excuse me. So in John chapter 8, verse 39, it says, They answered him, Abraham is our father, they being the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So Jesus makes it very clear you can have one of two fathers. You can either be of your father the devil, or you can be of the father. Right? So when we pray this prayer as his followers, we are acknowledging that God the Father is our father. Right? As his followers, as believers in Christ. There's other scriptures in, in uh, the New Testament that bear witness to this. Also, uh, Galatians chapter 4 talks about how through, through Jesus fulfilling the law, we receive adoption as sons, right? We're able to cry out, Abba, Father. In Romans 9, it says that not all who are of Israel belong to Israel, right? So just because you have the lineage of, a, of an Israelite, of a Jew, does not inherit you salvation. What inherits you salvation is if you're a child of the promise, a child of Isaac. That's what Romans 9 is talking about. The children of Isaac, the children of the promise, are his church, right? So he's making a very clear distinction that who you call father matters, right? So a rhetorical question that I have that I want you all to sit with um, in this sermon as we, as we keep going. It says, are you living and believing and seeing yourself as a son or daughter? Or are you living as an orphan? Do you believe the father has abandoned, rejected, or separated himself from you? I want you all to sit with that as we keep going, okay? The very next verse, it says, your kingdom come. So, what this shows about us is that we're saved into a kingdom community. God and others, you can't separate the two, right? You need both. And also, what this says is that this is not about my kingdom of self. This is about his kingdom. It's not about me. It's about him and his will, right? There's, um, there's a verse in Hebrews. It says, forsake not the assembly of the saints, as most of you are inclined to do, Right? What I like about that version, and my pops actually told me about this, and it's stuck with me ever since, is that that word assembly means we're doing more than just gathering. We can gather here every Sunday. We can just come in like pieces of a clock, and we can just gather and just be in this spot, and we can just be here together. But when we assemble, practically what that looks like is I know your weaknesses, and I know your strengths. And you know my weaknesses, and you know my strengths. We assemble together as community, and we build up this body of Christ together, right? So we're saved into a community. We're saved into kingdom community. The other thing that follows this prayer is the peace of God, right? So in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 through 7, it says, Do not be anxious, but by all 
but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, right? And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. So anxiety comes, right? We can be dominated by anxiety when I'm worried about future outcomes and I'm trying to control things. I'm trying to, ha- I'm trying to wrap my arms around everything. And that becomes exhausting. We want to be omnipotent. We want to be all-knowing. We want to know the outcomes. We want to know how everything's going to pan out. We can't do that because we're human. And then we get exhausted. We get tired. We get discouraged. And the anxiety continues. Now, I'm, I'm not, hear, hear me when I say this. I'm not saying that when you feel anxious that that's bad. That's a, that's a normal human reaction but when we become dominated by anxiety, when we start living in anxiety, that shows that there's a faith issue. Okay, hear me when I say this, because, and the reason I say that is the Bible is not going to command you not to do something that either one, you can't do, or the God isn't going to give you the power to not do. So, do not be anxious, okay? So, when we pray this prayer, when we surrender our will, His peace guards our heart. And our heart, out of our heart, Flows, springs of life, right? So it's extremely important. So the rhetorical question I have for you to ask yourself here, do you believe God is in control? Or are you struggling because of self-protection? Are you struggling because of, you, of being self-sufficient or struggling with the idea of being independent? Next up we got, give us this day our daily bread. I like that this, this, this verse comes right after your kingdom come, because Jesus also says in Matthew, seek you first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Kingdom of God and his righteousness, excuse me, can't leave that out. And all these things will be added to you, right? So give us this daily bread. This request comes right after seeking his kingdom. This shows something about us, right? And this is going to be super profound. We have needs, we are human beings, we're creatures, so we act creaturely and we have needs. The problem is that we, a lot of times, we function as if we don't have them. We don't want to let people in, we want to keep our guards up, we want to project that we have it all figured out, and what really what that's doing is just showing that I have a need to be secure. So no matter what, you try, however you try to go around it, we have needs, and it's okay to have needs. I remember... Um, at the mission, there was a guy, he came in, and, and we were talking. He was an atheist, and he was telling me how, he said, I don't need God. I'm in control. I got it. I don't need God. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, just, I get what y'all are doing. I appreciate it, but I just don't need it. Like, I'm in control. That's what he said. And so I said, okay, well, if you're in control, then stop breathing. And so he held his breath, right? He was like, <laughs> he held it. <sighs> then he finally let, let go right? And he didn't really get what I was getting at, but what I was saying is so often we want to control everything around us. We say we can control everything around us. We can't even control our own faculties, right? I can't stop. I can say, like, I I can't even stop breathing if I don't want to stop breathing. I can't even control what time I want to wake up in the morning. I can set my alarm, right? But either sometimes we wake up right before it or sometimes we sleep right through it, right? So, like, we can't even control our bodies, but we want to control everything going on around us. It's just, it's, we just can't do it. So this daily bread, right? So he's saying, seek God for your daily bread. The daily bread isn't just physical. It's also spiritual. 
In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah was worn out to the point where he was ready to die. He was running from Jezebel. He said, Lord, I'm done. I'm no better than my father's. I'm just, I'm done. I'm, I'm at an end. I'm ready to die. He falls asleep. He wakes up and the angel of the Lord brings him bread and water. And he, and he eats it and he gets it and he gets all the way up to Mount Horeb, right? So Jesus is the bread of life. He's also the well of living water, right? So that, day, that daily portion is spiritual in nature. And whatever mountain you're facing, God will give you just enough to keep you moving and get you through it. Right. So the, the question I have for you is, do you struggle to believe that God will truly provide for your needs? Do you struggle to believe that God is a provider? I want you guys to know, too, like every single one of these questions, I'm preaching to me. So don't think that I'm up here. I got it all figured out. Like I'm going through all of this now. So just, just want to clear that up and make sure you guys know that. All right. Um, next, we have forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Okay, so something really important to, to, to sit with here. It's important to note our forgiving of others or how frequently we forgive, frequently we forgive, does not inherit us salvation. That would be like a work. What Jesus is saying here is ask the Father to forgive us the same way we forgive others. So in order to really receive and believe forgiveness, I have to be willing to extend it to other people. Harboring unforgiveness is a stumbling block with intimacy with God. Because if I'm not able to forgive somebody else, then I'm going to really struggle to believe truly that God, one, for God forgives me and that other people forgive me when they extend forgiveness to me. We cannot harbor unforgiveness. So that also includes you forgiving yourself. Okay, God did not bankrupt heaven, okay, like Jesus did not come and die and give himself on the cross for you to look at that and say, okay, but, not, but that's not good enough for me. Like if Jesus was enough to fulfill the holy, righteous standard of a holy God, right, he has to be good enough for you to forgive yourself, okay, so it might be time to let it go, okay. The more you harbor unforgiveness, whether that's unforgiveness towards somebody else or unforgiveness towards yourself, it's going to really make it hard for you to believe that God forgives you. When we can wrap our mind just a little bit on how much God really forgave us, my heart is positioned in such a way that how can I withhold forgiveness from somebody else? I'm not saying it's not going to be hard. Hear me when I say that. I'm not saying that like the things that people have done to you that it's going to be easy to let go of. I'm not saying that. But the heart posture at the core of who I am has to be because God has forgiven me so much, I have to be willing. I know I got to let it go. I know that I have to forgive. I know that I have to, I have to let this thing go. And that's what we're getting at here. All right. So the, the question that I have for you here is, are you struggling to believe that God truly forgives you? Or do you believe that he's turned his face from you? Finally, it says, lead us not into temptation. Okay, it's not in God's nature to lead you to sin. Okay, it's in scripture as well. God does not tempt anybody with evil. James, it says that out of your own wicked desires and your own evil desires, your heart will, will, will lead you to go and sin, right? So God doesn't need us to sin against him more than we already do, 
right? So God's not going to lead you to temptation. He's not going to lead you to sin. What Jesus is getting at here is I'm asking God to lead me and protect me from the things that will naturally grab my heart and my affections and pull me away from him, right? And if I'm not being led into, into temptation, I'm walking with God. If I'm, if I'm walking towards him, by, by definition, I'm going to run away from everything that is evil. So all I have to do is just focus on him and allow him to lead me in righteousness. Okay. So the final question is, do, well, not the final one, but the next question is, are you angry at God for a time that temptation took you captive and you had to face the consequences. Okay, so there are a lot of different things we can believe about God to make us question if he's truly good and truly who he says he is. And I, in, in reading this, Jesus senses that, reading this, we see that Jesus senses this doubt in his disciples. Because the disciples ask him how to pray, he tells them how to pray, and then he immediately goes into how God is different in answering prayer than anybody and any person that we're used to, right? He, he makes it clear in these next few verses in Luke eleven five 5 through 13. So I'm just going to read it. He said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, well, instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Okay, so what this shows is that the Holy Spirit is the best gift. Right? Put it practically. So there's a lot of different people that have a lot of different views about what Jesus is saying here. Okay, but I think the most common consensus is that Jesus is talking about this as a way of a lifestyle. Okay, so put it practically, if you want to be a better husband, ask for more of the Holy Spirit. All right. The Holy Spirit's job is to make us be more like Jesus, right? So if you want to be a better husband, ask the Holy Spirit. If you want to be a better son, ask for the Holy Spirit. You want to be a better wife, ask for the Holy Spirit. You want to be a better daughter, ask for the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus is the one that when we behold him and we become more like him, he will make, like, we're automatic, like, it just takes care of everything else. Like, you want to be a better worker? Ask for more of the Holy Spirit. You want to be a better employee? Ask for more of the Holy Spirit. You want to be a better steward? Ask for the Holy Spirit. Like, God is who, the one who leads us to walk his ways. So he's the best gift, right? And I think it's so beautiful that we can ask God for provision and we can ask him for things that we know are going to fade away, that they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna turn to dust, right? But, and we can ask him for these things, but what he promises is that he will give us more of himself. And how beautiful is that? Like he promises, he banks his word on it, I will give you the third personhood of the Trinity. I will give you more of myself. And that takes care of everything else. So Holy Spirit's the best gift. So 
I want to I want to do like a little illustration for this father's. This um this when he's talking about you who are evil, who give good gifts. So how many of you in here have children? Raise your hand. Okay. Okay. So I want to um. I want to invite everybody for a moment to just kind of close their eyes and just and just and just sit in this for a second. Okay. And this can go for if you have children that are older and, and they've left the house a long time ago. This can go if you're expecting a child soon, right? Or if you're if you're planning for children. Think about your child for a moment. Somebody does something that hurts them. Maybe they took advantage of them. Maybe they used them. How quickly are you going to be ready to see that justice is served? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more is your father going to give good gifts? Think about you give your, your, your child something for Christmas, right? Something that they've wanted for a long time and you just see the joy, you see it light up on their face, you see just the innocent, you see just how happy they are. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more is your father going to give good gifts to those who ask? Think about holding your child in your arms as you're getting ready to go to sleep and you see they're just, they're just resting. They're not striving. They're not trying to earn your love. They're not trying to make you feel good about them because they messed up earlier in the day. All those different things. They're just simply resting in your embrace. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more is your father going to give good gifts to those who ask? What Jesus is getting at here is we as people are naturally inclined to do the wrong thing. We're we're naturally evil, right? We have this sinful nature, but we still know how to give good gifts. So if we can give good gifts, how much more will our Father in heaven give the best gifts to us? How much more joy do you think he feels? How much more ready to vindicate his people do you think that he is? How much more delight do you think that he takes when he sees that his children aren't striving to earn his love anymore because he paid the cost already through Jesus? Think about it. How much more will your father give good gifts to those who ask? Okay. So the next thing um, in this scripture, I actually kind of skipped over this, but the, the, in this scripture, impudence that, that Jesus is talking about here, that in the NASB, that's translated shamelessness. Okay. So when has shame kept you from seeking, from knocking, and, 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 and approaching the Lord, right? So I want to divert really quick to Matthew chapter 18, verse 4. Well, we'll start in verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so we just, we talked about children. We looked at that. But I want to share this story. So I had a good friend of mine. Uh, he was a part of a 12-step group in CR. And we were meeting, we were just talking one day. And 
and he was um, just sharing with me. He was like, man, you know what? Like, I'm just, like, I'm struggling. I'm just struggling to believe God. Like, he's, cr- like, I, you know, I say I believe God. I say I believe all these things. Like, if I truly believe God, you know, like, nothing would really be able to bother me. Like, I could ride. I could be riding to work. I could have a tire fly off, fly off my car, and it wouldn't even bother me because I know God's in control. Like, to have faith like that, like, how can we do that? Like, I say I believe all these things. It's almost like you would have to have faith like a child. Child. You ever just watch the Holy Spirit just convict somebody in the middle of them talking? That's what happened, right? It just hit him. It just hit him right in the chest. And he was just like, oh. And so I share that to, to, to bring all of this together, right? I, all these things we believe about God. God wants your childlike faith. Meaning, maybe it's time to trust him with the wounded child you've been trying to protect for so long. That wounded child, whatever happened, whatever happened to you, whatever that was, it was not him. It wasn't him. You can take his face. Whoever did it, you can take their face off of God. Jesus is making it very clear. He is not like anybody else. He's not like anyone else. It's time to let that go and trust him. So maybe God's calling you today to let go of some of those, those beliefs about him that you've believed for so long, right? Maybe, maybe you've never cried out to God. Maybe you've never asked him for the gift of himself. Maybe you've been like Elijah and you've been just trying to go at it on your own and you're tired. And you're at the end. And you're tired of of, of striving. Our God goes by many names. We've sung about a thousand names. He goes by a lot of different names for a lot of different reasons. He has all these names to communicate his character and his attributes. Okay. And so we're just going to go through. A, a couple of them, right? God can't lie. This is how serious this is. If God lies, he stops being God. That's like he ceases to exist the moment he lies because he comes against everything, everything and every piece of who he is, right? In Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-seven, he says, he would forsake Israel and his covenant if the heavens and the depths could be explored. So what God is saying is, I will throw all this out the window if you can find out how many stars are in heaven and you can see how deep the, the, the depths go. I will throw all this away. Like that is how much God banks on his word. Okay, so God cannot lie, right? And he can't lie about who he is, who he says he is. So if you believe God is angry, there's a name he goes by. It's Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. The Lord has made peace with his people through the blood of Jesus. Now, I want to I sit here for a second, okay? I have to do this. I'm not going to tell you that you have peace where there is no peace, okay? Hebrews 10, 31, it says, it is a terrifying and a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you haven't placed your faith in him. You haven't placed your trust in him, right? You haven't believed in the perfect life that he lived. He followed God's law to the letter. What does that mean? That means he loved the Lord, your, his God, with all his mind, soul, heart, and strength. Every single moment, every breath, every step that he walked, he walked in perfect, 
unity with God, right? And he gave himself up as a sacrifice for you so that when you place your faith in him, a genuine faith that leads me to repent and turn and forsake what I was doing, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, genuine faith, I'm not going to tell you that you're at peace with God, but I can tell you that God loves you and he, and he made a way for you through his son, right? And now you, you have a responsibility to respond to that. But he, but he makes peace with his people. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Maybe you've believed God's ashamed of you and he's turned his face from you. There's a name for that too, right? It's, it's, it's Elroy, the God who sees, right? Maybe you've, you've struggled to believe that God will provide for you. He has a name for that too. It's Jehovah Jireh, right? Maybe you've believed that God will abandon you. He has two names for that. It's Emmanuel, God with us, and Jehovah Shammah, God is there. You have to, maybe you've had to be, you've believed that you've had to defend and vindicate yourself. You've had to fight for yourself all this time. He's got two names for that too. Jehovah Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, Lord of heaven's armies, and Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner or the Lord is my flag, right? And maybe... You've struggled to believe that God will heal you. Or you str- you're, you're praying for healing, whether it's physical healing, emotional healing, whether it's spiritual healing, whatever that looks like, and God's just not coming through. Or you're living with somebody that's suffering. He has a name for that too. It's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is my healer. So what I want to do right now is I want to open, open up this altar. If you don't know Christ... Right? If, you, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, right? how do I know I have a relationship with Jesus? Things change. Okay? When you meet Christ, when you meet Jesus, you don't encounter the living God and stay dead. Okay? Things change. I'm not saying that it's not a process that's it's a struggle sometimes. I'm not saying that. But your heart will change. Things are different. Things change. So if you don't have a relationship with Christ, if you've never met him, I want to invite you. I want to invite you right now. I want to invite you to come forward. I want to invite, I want to open up this altar right here for, for anybody who, who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. It's anybody. And I want to pray for you. I also want to open up this altar for maybe you, you've believed things about God that were lies and you've believed it for too long. Maybe, you've, maybe you've, you've held on to this core belief. Maybe you've seen God as a, as a person. You've been looking at God as somebody that's hurt you. And maybe there's some repentance. Maybe, maybe you need to let some of that go. I want to open up this altar for, any, for anybody that would like to come and just surrender that to the Lord. I want to do that right now.